from the Rose City in beautiful downtown Portland, Oregon, home of bikes, books, bridges, beards, food carts, startups, and indie coffee. Grab your dog, snatch your hammer and beer, leave your umbrella at home. Welcome to the Tiny House Podcast. Wow, that was pretty good. That was. It's the Tiny House Podcast. I'm Perry. Hey, this is MJ. And this is Mark. And we are as fired up as we were in the last episode. These come out in order, don't they? Usually. Yeah. Usually. Yeah, they do. Yeah, with a few exceptions. <laughs> Unless someone's paid us to do otherwise, which has happened never. never. <laughs> or we have technical issues and they, you know, we kick them off the air or something like that. So yeah. that's happened. Yeah. So what did you do last Sunday, Perry? Is there something I should have done last Sunday? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's So what, what did... were you doing last week, last Sunday, Michelle? <laughs> oh. <laughs> what were wow. you doing last Sunday, Mark? Well, I took a trip to the Sherwood Forest. <laughs> I did too. I just, I guess I, must guess I had a blank or something. That was a whole two days ago, or three days ago. <laughs> exactly. It's a time warp. It is. It's Actually, it was warp. great. I, I traveled out to Sherwood to visit Michelle's um, little perch, tiny perch, and f- was really... Um, impressed with the with the perch itself and its awesome deck, um, and the cookies that you served, which were really delicious. <laughs> um, but what I really liked about it most was the bathroom. The bathroom was beautiful. Thank you. Well, it was. Thank you. And um, especially compared to the bathroom in my little cabin, MLB MLC, um, it was. And, and the little the bed space in the back was really really comfortable. Sitting back there with your daughter. And uh, hanging out with all the windows. And oh, is that who you were hanging with? I heard you yeah. were on the bed for an hour with a woman, but I didn't know it was her daughter. <laughs> is, that, is that how she characterized Somebody it? did that. Maybe I you, didn't characterize so, somebody it Somebody else said that, oh, okay. so somebody you probably didn't know. Yeah, yeah, I was back That's not creepy. Talking. I know, it just sounds kind of weird. <laughs> Except it's a tiny house, so you can't do anything anywhere and get away with it. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, but she, she talked about you guys going, having gone to Disney World and having spent... People were spending five hours, she said, to stand in line for one ride. For one ride. Oh, come on. That's a waste of your oh life right there. Isn't that crazy? And the and that wait time, that queue for that ride was that way five minutes after they opened. Is that even Be- with the Fast Pass or is that without? Yes. No, that was as a result of the Fast Pass uh. because all the Fast Pass people had got in at 7 a.m. And the park doesn't open until 8 a.m. Wow. So all the Fast Passers headed straight to that one ride. So if you got in at 8 a.m., you were kind of screwed, which we did and we were. And um, it was kind of funny. <laughs> but yeah, that, that lounge area in the back, that bed slash lounge area, because the house is so small, it kind of doubles as that, you know, that's what like it doubles. Like a living room or exactly. in, in den. Exactly. And it, it's really nice back there. You put a couple of pillows on the wall and you're good to go and throw a TV on the opposite wall. And Yeah, it's all, it's wired for it. Yeah. I just haven't put the TV in. Mm. I'm struggling. So here's a question. You think I should put a TV in? Or do people go out to the Sherwood Forest to read books and listen to music? I think you should always have the option. Really? Yeah. Some, I don't know. Mark's opposite. It kind of seems more like you kind of want to go out Walden, Walden Pond when you're going out there, mm-hmm. kind of, because it's far enough from Portland. Do you have Wi-Fi there? Yes. I mean, it's either or, right? Yeah, I mean, it's the Wi-Fi that can stream stuff on their own devices if they're absolutely 
need to. Yeah. Remember, we talked to Getaway Houses, Getaway the um, Getaway yeah. Desk, yeah. and they had really <laughs> talked about the experience, right? You know, of unplugging and mm-hmm. disconnecting. And I kind of wanted to, um, so I'm. I don't think I'm going to add a TV unless I get a tremendous amount of feedback that feedback Feed. that says feedback that mm. says where was the TV? Obviously, it's not listed as an attribute for my rental, but. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it was so much work and so much fun. This particular one, I also have a lot of landscaping to do as well. So, yeah. so that was a lot of fun and a lot of work as well. But Speaking of work and fun and community and all that kind of good jazz, I want to say crap, but... Um, but you to want to be respect. respect the lady. <laughs> <laughs> we have in the studio an in-studio guest. It Yay. doesn't happen very often, but today Woo. we do. We have Diane Freeney, who is responsible for creating what I think is one of the coolest um, communities in Northeast Portland, and I'm so glad to hear it's in Northeast Portland because when I was reading your backstory, it sounded like it was in some other community where goats were raised. But <laughs> we'll get to that in a little bit. But it's just goat yoga. <laughs> so, well, That's in Oregon City. Welcome to founder of Emerson Street House, uh, Diane Freeney. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. So um, I want to start with, you know, our show is all about stories. So right. I want to start with the story of how you met Mark. How did, <laughs> Mark's like, what? Uh, how, did, how did you end up meeting Mark? I don't even remember. <clears throat> we met for the very first time at the, uh, the very first Pitch Black event, which I helped oh, organize. Oh, yes, yes. And, uh, yes, I do remember now, yes. Mm-hmm. I, so many things have happened In since between then. then, and we bumped into each other a lot yeah. of many different things. So, yeah. And I really liked that event because... Um, you know, I'm I'm very much a community person, and um, so much of the money that goes to people um, comes through VC and angel investors, which to me is old hat. Mm-hmm. And I was so happy to see it was Minnie and George, Lori Caldwell, who won the day, and she hand makes um, purses and leather goods. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems like she's still doing very well, so I'm really pleased about that. Very good. Well, I have to say, number one, your memory's so much better than mine. <laughs> Why? Well, the details that she just gave about Minnie and George. Oh, yeah, and for stuff, sure. Like, if you said who was one or oh, who yeah. was, I'd be like, really good people. Yeah, you know? <laughs> exactly. Very but, deserving yes. individuals. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and, and just for the listeners, Pitch Black is not a Vin Diesel in, uh, movie. <laughs> it was. <laughs> it was. It was an event in Portland, Oregon. Uh, for African American founders to pitch their startups, there were, let me think, six six founders pitched. The audience of about 150 people mm-hmm. that night all voted with three stickers, mm-hmm. um, and then the, basically all the ticket sales were split equally amongst the top three vote getters. Yeah, right. So really good, really good event. Well, fun. That is still going or not? It is still going. It'll be in its third or fourth year this year. Is it still called that? It's still called. It's called. I think now it's called Pitch Black PDX because there may be some other cities involved. Yeah. Um, and not to embarrass Diane, but she also out of the blue because nobody. Well, I didn't know Diane at the time too, but she actually invested in, donated, mm-hmm. granted mm-hmm. Uh, the winner an extra. I think it was. Thousand dollars, thousand dollars, yeah. But which was a lot less than she'd wanted to do, and we, as the organizers, were like, "Oh, we because we didn't want to make it about the money." Yeah. Uh huh. Um, yeah. So it was a great gesture, and and like you said, you supported an incredible founder. Yes, and you know, I, I got involved in the whole 
I guess, you know, looking at businesses from a um, ethnic cultural background um, with um, Black Tech Week. I was quite proud to be the only old white woman they invited as a speaker to the inaugural <laughs> Black Tech Week <laughs> in, in Miami. And, oh, wow. Nice. And, um, you know, I am, I've been following them since then. They're, uh, and, and they have done amazing things. They have a whole new model mm. that is not all about the money. Mm-hmm. Nice. And, um, and there's a lot of training of children in that. Um, so I'm quite, I'm even more proud now when I right. look back and say, boy, I was there and that team is still going and going strong and they've gotten so much stronger. So can you share a little with our listeners about your background as an investment banker, which I'm, I was just going to introduce well, that in a different way that would have been oh, much cooler. Okay, that forget, okay. <laughs> Rick, leave mine in, but let's, okay. hear, let's hear Perry do it yes. much better. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, Mark. That's so right. so I understand you come from Wall Street and you know our, time, our listeners probably have a certain perspective about Wall Street people. And mm-hmm. now you've you traded in the black hat for the white hat. Tell us a little for bit about- For black people. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Tell us about how you got, how you came uh, from, from where you were to where you are now, and then we'll get to Emerson. Emerson God, that's out. such a long story. Yeah. It's such a long story. We have lots of time. And, yeah. um, and I actually wasn't ever an investment banker. I was, um, I, I was on the company side, and um, I did tax-sheltered investing, which is like everything, you know, the... Panama Papers, the Paradise Papers, all that is about now. Mm. And, um, you know, I think I had the good sense to get out when I could. And I was really fortunate because Mike Milken came and took over our company and he fired me. <laughs> Yay! <Wow. Yeah. laughs> I, as a, that's my second proudest thing. <laughs> the best, worst thing to ever happen. Exactly. <laughs> um, yes. Um, and, wow. you know, and, and I looked at, you know, I went from there and I looked went and worked um, uh, running money for foundations um, and I learned a lot there and what was wrong with that, which I'm still going after. Um, and, and then I went and worked for nonprofits, first of all, big nonprofits and then small nonprofits. And, you know, I, I've, it, I just changed my whole perspective. I'm now working much more with artists in fact, artists, you know, I've gone from being an accountant where the numbers meant everything to it's like I can't even understand this stuff anymore. Well, that's why I, I'm so curious how you made how how you made that transition. Like, how did you how did you get into Wall, Wall Street in the first place as an accountant? And now what happened that had your mindset change if it changed where now you're working with artists and foundations and nonprofits and community I mean you know I I grew up in a family business my father was in garbage and sewers um I learned business from him and um you know so when I went to college you know I took accounting cuz he was the salesman somebody had to be the accountant so, <laughs> and what I learned from him, you know, I, you know, there's another big story that he had to sell his business, and I won't even go into that. That's another another whole series of stories. But anyway, he, um, I, I got out of college. Um, you know, I decided to go to work for a big eight accounting firm at the time. 
four of them said they would hire women, four wouldn't. Um, so one of them hired me, and um, I've always been kind of a renegade, I guess. I mean, he taught me to be. He taught me to be his son. <laughs> and so I never had a problem with just speaking out because, um, because that's how I was trained. Yeah. And I'm really grateful for that. Yeah. Um, and so I you know, went up the accounting thing. I worked for companies. I, I got to the point where I feel like I'm, you know, I I was on the horizon for all the big financial innovations that happened in this country. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and people say that is impossible. Of course it's possible. There weren't many. There's, <laughs> only, there's only a few. And, and then people just keep, you know, hijacking them and doing them a little differently. And so, you know, and I just... I don't know. I one of the people I'm working with now showed me a TED talk about multipotentialites, mm-hmm. people that have different interests all the time, and um, and and he said he said I'm one of those, and he said and you're one of those. So I, you know, I used to have to hide the fact that I had so many jobs. You know, is fired a lot of times because I'm outspoken. Mm-hmm. Um, Me too. <laughs> that's good. That's good. That's Today, right. Today, that's a benefit. It, it is a benefit. Yeah. Yes, and it wasn't in my day, so I had to keep hiding that stuff on my resume. But, but I was able to do that, and I just kept moving in different directions and learning stuff. And I mean, now I'm 75 years old, and I'm like, yeah, you know what? Now I really know stuff, and I'm willing to share that, and I want to share that, and I'm looking for people who. Um, who have that ability to really just look at the whole picture, to look at the system and to mm-hmm. change the system. And I've found most of them are artists. Yeah. Well, just a quick divergence. What year was it when, what year was it? And were these accounting firms actually saying to your face, we don't hire women? Yes, 1965. Wow. Yes, I was the only woman to graduate in the public accounting program from Syracuse University in 1965. Wow. In 1985, I tried to get into a veterinary school program, and they told me we only have a spot for one woman per year. That was in the 80s. Wow. Yeah. It There's, doesn't change quick enough. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> there are certain fields that that change does come you know, slower Super than slow. others. Yeah. yeah. So, so this is great. So tell, tell us about the Emerson Street House. Well, the Emerson Street House, um, I, you know, I went and got an MBA in 2013 from Bainbridge Graduate Institute um, in sustainable systems. So as I went through it and learned stuff, I realized I wanted to get involved in urban planning. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't even know what that meant. Um, I found Jane Jacobs. I love Jane Jacobs. And I only bought her book. I mean, I, I was living in New York City when she was fighting Robert Moses mm. and. um in the 60s, I mean, the later part of that, because when I graduated in 65, I moved to New York City, and she was fighting Robert Moses in um, in New York, in Greenwich Village, in her house. And, um, and I only bought her book because it was $7 on Amazon.com, <laughs> and I needed another $6 to get my free shipping. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, awesome. I got this book, and it was like little... Like this, uh-huh. and I've been I've been looking, you know, I'm reading all this stuff to go to MBA school, because um, and I'm thinking, oh shit, these kids really know a lot, you know. So I got to start reading stuff, and they all have all these things at the back, you know, like you know, 
quoting this person, quoting that person, because that used to be the way you did things. And um, and I looked at her book, and I thought, oh, my God, there's nothing at the back. There's nothing at the back. <laughs> so I really have to learn who this is. So I read the book, and I thought, oh, my God, this is awesome. I just love it. You know, it's all the community-based stuff. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and then I looked at her history, and she didn't have a college degree. I mean, this is still the Bible of urban planning yeah, today, yeah. and she's dead now. Yeah. But she wrote, she wrote at the time that Rachel Carson and Betty Friedan mm. were writing, and it was like, oh, my God, this so, is so great. So you'll have to excuse me, and hopefully um, our listeners are in the same place I am. I'm really high in my headphones. Are you high? And so is she okay. to me. Um, it, these people that you just mentioned, I am unfamiliar with. So can you tell, okay. tell a little bit about who these people Betty are? Betty Friedan was... Um, <clears throat> Was feminism? There you go. And Rachel Carson. Um, Rachel Carson mm-hmm. was the Silent Spring. Which, I know her. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. the Silent Spring. I know that. Okay. And Jane Jacobs was urban planning. Um, She's getting distracted by yeah, our hand gestures in the uh, okay. In the sorry, studio. Okay. You just keep, keep on talking. Okay. I'm listening, but I'm help talking to Mark via my hands. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, um, that old hand jive. So I read this, and and she she likes you know short blocks with lots of different things on the blocks mm-hmm. with businesses mm-hmm. on the blocks, and um, her book is the death and life of great American cities. She wrote a lot more after that. Um, she got a grant to write that book mm-hmm. from the Rockefeller Foundation. Okay. Um, and when she got the grant, she got a call from the joint MIT-Harvard thing on urban planning, department, whatever. And they invited her to come to Cambridge from New York City now for lunch. And she went up there, and they told her what she should do with her book, that she should write um, a book about what middle class people want in their um, city. And she said, she thanked them for lunch and she left. And she thought, oh my God, how horrible it would be to be a doctoral student at Harvard and MIT and have your life dependent, you know, your career dependent on these people. Yeah. And she went back and wrote what she wanted, <laughs> which she had, you know, and, and, the results are obvious. The book is still selling. Yeah. What is the book? What is the premise of the book? Well, it's just how how you um, you lay out a city for people. The book is for people. I mean, she talks about eyes on the street mm. um, and how you position like a like a sink in the kitchen in front of a window. Mm. So people can look out and see what's going on in the street, and that's your safety system. Interesting. Hmm. So, um, and there's wow. a lot of other things too. Mm-hmm. Uh, she talks about her own um, community in um, Greenwich Village and how you know they're going to try and take it down for urban renewal. Um, and she fought that. You know, she picketed, got other people to picket, that kind of thing. And Robert Moses, um, he built these, you know, high-rise tenements, which have now mostly been torn down. Interesting. Yes. 
And you know, the thing, the problem is here, we were a Jane Jacobs city in Portland. Portland was a Jane Jacobs city. She was here in 2004 before she died. She met with Mark Lakeman of um, City Repair. He started City Repair. Mm -hmm. And um, in fact, his book on placemaking is um, uh, dedicated to her. Mm -hmm. Um, And we... When you look at the pearl, a lot of what happened in the pearl, the way the pearl was built out, is the kind of thing that Jane Jacobs would have wanted. Hmm. But in but in the pearl, so so for the lis- listeners, the pearl district is an up upscale living neighborhood of Portland that was once an industrial area, mm-hmm. and it's 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 called the pearl because it is liter- literally kind of like a jewel of Portland in terms of well, in terms of a lot of things. Mm-hmm. But it seems to me. That the way the pearl looks now mm. is a bunch of skyscrapers. Yeah, and people lose Portland's their way. Getting, yeah, <clears throat> I mean, I'm saying the way it was developed initially. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think the biggest travesty, and I drove by I-95 the other day um, by the South Waterfront. I mean, I thought Robert Moses has one. <laughs> yeah, because there's so yeah. many of yes. those yeah. very yes. tall buildings in that yeah. area. And, and that's what's happening all over. I mean, it's happening in the Northeast a little less. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's certainly what I want to prevent. Right. And, you know, the neighborhood around the Emerson Street house, we have um, mapped out a, on an a 80-acre it's eighty acre area. That's what my architect says. I can't make it measure acres, but he's um, he says it's eighty acres has all residential, and we are going to try what we want to do is preserve that and create a model that um, will work for um, for the people of Portland, the people that live there, and we've registered it for the Living Community Challenge with the International Living Future Institute. And um, that they, we are right now the only registered project in the city of Portland. And they will have their conference in Portland May 1st to the 4th at the convention center, I think. And, um, uh, you know, we really want to present what we're doing. Um, we have a very different model. What is describe your model and how how is it preserving quote unquote these eighty acres? Like it's not going to be w- open land, is it? It's no, it's not open land. We there we mapped out an area that is just residential, um, and the International Living Future Institute. I mean, it's all architects. They want you to have. Um, she rolled her eyes for the yeah. <laughs> I feel like I should be like narrating also some of her hand gestures. Exactly. Like, like, oh. And and got an MBA and she just like, like flipped her hands like no big shoulders. deal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we, you know, we can't, we can't change what's happened. We can only start where we are. Right. Um, you know, my ideal, I would like to see all that land in a community land trust and not take, you know, the buildings stay there, the people stay in their houses. Uh, a land trust, and I'm not an expert on this, but I, so I have team members who are, and um, it preserves the land, and then you can buy and sell the houses, but the land stays. So my goal is to have all of them, and I have no idea how to do that, but I, I'm going to try. So how does the land stay? So, so for my first house I bought in Portland was through um, the 
it was either the Start program or the Smart program. The Start, it was for first-time home buyers, and what it was was the land was is in trust. So you, when you bought the house, you didn't own the land; you only own the ho- you only you only own the house, <laughs> and so you could you could and you couldn't rent the house; you could only own it. Right. And so when you sold it, the trust still held the land, but the mm-hmm. new owner would own the home. Yes. So how? So in that program, I don't think you can tear that house down no matter what and build something else on it. Mm-hmm. How would uh, owning the land that you're talking about in trust preserve? Well, first of all, what is it you're trying to preserve? And then how would it preserve that? I'm, I'm trying to preserve history and people and not get people to p- displaced. I mean, one of the things that I'm, really just outraged about right now is all the children that are homeless in Oregon. How can children be homeless? We need to be preserving places for families. And we look at, you know, everyone just rolls their eyes and says they can't do anything here. Like, you know, it seems like the lobbyists and the lawyers are in charge in Portland. And I'm kind of disgusted with that. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I just see this. I, I mean, I know my neighbors on the street, you know, and I had my architect, who's actually a great architect, um, come in, and he we were sitting in a meeting the other day, and two kids from down the street roller skated in, and I, I have two CSAs I get, um, and they just went over and picked out vegetables and walked out for dinner, and he says, I don't <laughs> believe I just saw that. <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of neighborhood I want to live in, mm-hmm. you know, um, and... And in, and we are creating that now, but I have, um, you know, a, next door to me is a PCRI house that has been empty for five months. Right. And I wrote to them and said, "Listen, I want, the, I w- this is what I want to do with that house." Um, Mr. Bobby, who teaches dance, who's second generation Oregonian eligible for the preference policy in Northeast because of where he lived and was born, is registered for it. I want to turn that garage into, a, you know, into an ADU for Mr. Bobby. And he's, he's a former ballet dancer with the Oregon Ballet Theater, and mm. he has neuropathy, and he's in a cart right now, in a motorized cart. Mm. Oh, yeah. So it's hard for him to get around. Yeah. I mean, he could run the Emerson Street House and teach children dance there, which is what his specialty is. And he teaches lots of other things too, mm-hmm. art and that, um, and be right next door. And I, you know, I, I said, and I'd really like to see how we take care of people with disabilities in this city. And I said, I would like to see Chloe Udaly's son, Henry, who is and I'm going to use the word profoundly disabled, and I hope I don't offend anybody. Um, he he's, needs care 24-7, and he would need to have the house um, uh, built out or renovated, I guess, retrofitted for his needs, which I'd like to see somebody do. It's a 1904 house, and we need that. And my architect said, I'll give him a discount to do this work for both things. Um, and Henry's... 17 now, which I believe is older than Chloe was when she moved out of her family home. And um, for Christmas, he got an Amazon Echo Snow. Oh, yeah. And, you know, she made a comment of how great that was for him um, because 
he could he could now rebel like a teenager, <laughs> which he wasn't able to do before. Right, right. That and I'm like, oh my God, this is really going to change the life of people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. That's true. Um, and I can see that. and I want to be part of that. I want that to be part of our whole process there. So let me, I want to ask my question again, because I'm not quite sure I got an answer, although the answer you gave was was rich with, with specifics and examples. Okay. So we have the Pearl District, right? and it has become something other than what it started. Because right. I remember when they first built it out that the 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 way the planning was being done, it was mostly at the most two or four story buildings, mm-hmm. and it was almost all residential, um, mm-hmm. the the condos and and flats and things like that. And now we've got towers over there. So so you've got these eighty acres, and is this in the Cully neighborhood by chance? No, no. Okay. This is this is on the cusp of um, King Vernon and Woodlawn. Okay. So it's it's kind of in that area. Yeah. It's it's east of MLK. <clears throat> yep. Um, and it goes from 7th to 14th, and then from Webster to Jarrett. Okay, so you have a bunch of houses. It's basically, Mm -hmm. it's all houses there. It's all houses. And do you own these acres? No. That's what I thought. So you have all these houses, and you have all these people that own these houses. Mm -hmm. Well, they have mortgages Mm -hmm. on them. And and so and they own the property because this mm-hmm. is old style, old style. Or, or they rent it. Correct. Or they rent. Or and there's a lot of, um, you know, affordable housing units in there. There are actually, yeah. Yes. Okay. So so so, at this point, we have this major housing crisis in Portland, and what's happening is developers are buying. Sorry, Mark. I'm trying to. I know it's it a weird while. angle. Yeah. You're good. Are trying to to buy are are looking to buy old properties, right. raise them, and then throw up these right. huge apartment complexes that Kevin Kavanaugh says some of which are pieces of crap that mm-hmm. they're, they're building. Mm-hmm. And so, what is it that you're going to do with your 80 acres? You don't own them. Mm-mm. So, what are you? How are you going to? I, I guess your goal is to keep. Prevent what's happening in other parts of Portland with these major, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. R- these cheap, a- cheap ass developments from happening in those areas. How are you going to do that? Uh, I yeah. haven't figured that out yet. Okay, that's a good answer. <laughs> that's a startup founder answer. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> but you know, I'm going to yeah, keep talking, right keep writing letters, keep mm-hmm. in. Oh yes, people. oh yes, yes. Yeah. I have. I, I've been writing. I've been giving advice to President Trump. And Has he, he been listening? Yes, I have a copy of the letter. I'll give it to you. Oh, shit. I'd love to see it. Oh, yes. <laughs> Is it handwritten? No, it's it's signed by him. Wow. But spelled right? It's, it's, it's on one page <laughs> from the White House. Wow. And it basically says, in 2000, I'll show it to you. <laughs> so you guys talk. He needs a lot house. of advice, by the way, speaking yeah, of people really. that need advice. Well, be in careful. our opinion. <laughs> he, he does. He does. But you know what? Somebody's listening in the White House. Yeah, I, I, yeah, it's in, it is interesting. Yeah, it's actually. the FBI. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, this that's that's an arrogant Oregon answer. That's what, which what, is which is everyone just makes fun of Trump, but he's not a stupid man. Well, he couldn't have gotten where he's gotten mm-hmm. if he was dumb. All right, folks. So this letter says, uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but basically... Start 2015. Okay. In 2015, Congress passed bipartisan legislation to transfer more authority over education to the states. Accordingly, Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos will continue to return the power to make education-related decisions back to where it belongs to parents, teachers, and local districts. As president, I am committed to empowering our states and local communities to give children and families the tools they need to thrive. 
All right. Well, s- some people would say that Betsy DeVos doesn't know what she's talking about with regard to doing education. Yeah, it doesn't matter, does it? No, it doesn't. If they do the right thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and um, you know, I've, um, um, in, in my whole, I guess, process on Facebook, met a lot of people, and I'm um, included in a group of academics in Finland, and they have the be- one of the best education systems in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and when they saw the letter, they're like, oh, God, can we post this? This is wonderful, because we've been talking about how we would change education here. And we can start very easily. The first thing I would do, and they say, is no homework and no standardized tests. That is simple. We could do that overnight. And, um, and, and then... What happens when you do those two things? You can get rid of the administrative costs. You know, the big thing that's killing us, we need to be spending all our money on our teachers. We have some wonderful teachers here. I know some of the teachers in Oregon, and and they're sacrificing a lot to do the jobs they're that's doing. That's for sure. That's for sure. So I want to get rid of the administrators. And this is not new for me. I wrote, um, I did another master's degree in and I graduated in 99 from the University of Pennsylvania. And my thesis was on, um, I can't remember the exact name, um, how to use endowments to reduce tuition costs. And a big part of that was how bad the administrative costs are in, in higher education. And they've doubled. Mm. You know, this is ridiculous. You know, we don't need all this stuff. We don't need all these tests. We don't need all these certifications. We need... We need to trust our children to do the right thing, and they will. I mean, that's the system that, that Finland has. Well, so, so, okay, so my understanding, and we're kind of off topic with regard to our show, but that's a, this <laughs> is an interesting conversation anyway. It, it, what is, our, instead of talking out of ignorance, I'm just going to ask a question. Right. What is the Finnish education system like? Is it public funded? It's, it's all public funded. It is illegal to charge tuition for anybody in Finland. So what that means is everyone has to go to the public schools. Is it, is it illegal? Is it, can, do, when they say for anyone living in Finland, is that Finland residents, citizens, or is it anybody living in Finland? Anybody living in Finland. Okay. So, so that seems to, just what you said, seems to run counter to what I understand the administration's Department of Education policy is, which is to, to support, and I could be wrong, to support mm-hmm. um, private education and education focused on, um, they say, sp- focusing specifically on um, the students, but some would argue that that education is, the, the policies that the administration is putting in place is not consistent with what they're saying they want to do. So, so they seem. It seems to me that you're what you're saying. You're you're lauding the Finnish system, mm-hmm. which I thought was public, mm-hmm. public, mm-hmm. And seriously is, yes. public funded and and tuition free. Mm-hmm. With you're comparing that to a, an administration that's advocating for essentially private. Well, the one thing we've learned about the administration is nobody agrees on anything. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. and, and and I just read that. You know, to me, that's a mandate. Oregon do things differently. And, you know, I w- that's what I would take, and I would run with it. And, you know, um, I, you know I, I have a, the copy of the letter I sent to, um, 
to him to Trump, which I'm not sure where he got all all this to write back to me. Yeah. Except that everything I do is on the internet, so mm-hmm. you can figure out who I am very easily. I see. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I basically said, um, and and maybe that's something. Did I? Did you give that back to yes, me? Yes, I did. Oh, you should have kept it. Oh, I didn't know I was good. I could keep it. <laughs> yes, you can. Absolutely. That's okay. not the. That's, I made a copy. I'm oh, not okay. Gonna, My bad. Well, whatever. Here it is. <laughs> Don't the give him the original. Page. He'll just do it on eBay. <laughs> the second page. The second page is my letter, and that's something that I, I, I comes from the work I did at the University of Pennsylvania, and basically says, you know, um, use what I said in my thing. Um, use the endowment to reduce college tuition. And I think you start with that, and then you go through, and you just start doing other things, like have one number. It's so confusing now. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows what the number is. Mm-hmm. So we go back. We mm-hmm. have one number. You can, you know, you can pay for it yourself or get someone to pay for it for you. But but that's the number. And so, you know what that will happen? All the colleges and universities will say, "Oh my god, now we actually have to do a budget. We mm-hmm. have to we have to cut expenses. We have to look at things like how much, you know, professors are making." Um and I hate to go sidetracking, but one of the things that I have been doing is going to the Oregon Investment Council meetings for the last two years. And we have a $25.3 billion deficit. We who? The we, state of Oregon? The state of Oregon. All of you mm-hmm. and me, $6,000 per citizen, not per taxpayer mm-hmm. or anything, mm-hmm. per citizen that we would owe into that. Unless we change the system, and we can change the system. And I think that's part of the mandate, because the problem is the people that they made the promises to, the teachers, the firemen, the policemen, the, the clerks who take care of us when we go and try and you know, get a license or something like that, they're not the people who are making the money. The people who are making the money out of that system are overpaid doctors from OHSU, football coaches, basketball coaches. Johnny Delashaw, who is, was a OHSU doctor and is, I think, on a, under indictment by the FBI um, for double booking operating rooms at the Swedish hospital in, um, in Seattle. Mm. Um, and his... He's, his payout is $671,000 and change mm. annually from that. And the average... That's or, his salary? That's his pension payout. That's his pension payout? That's his pension payout. Wow. Yeah. And, and everybody just says, well, we have to protect the people or we made this decision with judges a bunch of years ago. I mean, no, no. So we I can have to change it. So I can see this passion is 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 coming over to the land use and housing and right. neighborhood development and community building and all that kind of thing. And you're you're so talk. Let's talk more about Emerson House. So you live in Emerson House, is that right? I live in Emerson House. It's it was built as a main house and an ADU. It was built as a passive house to be net zero. Mm-hmm. And some place along the line, the you know. The developer decided that I was just a stupid little old lady, and they would take advantage of me, and they did. What? How did they do that? Well, um, yeah, that would be a long thing, but um, 
you know, I went through the process of going through the contractor's construction board. The, the, the arbitration thing? Yes. And I lost. And all I asked for, I did not ask for my money back. I asked for documentation, complete documentation. Of what? Of the costs of the house. And they did not provide it? They did not provide it. And, and, and the, you know, I lost whatever it was. When so, you say whatever it was, you're talking about amount of money. Is that right? Well, or? no, I'm, I, I mean, I lost the case, which oh, again, it. I didn't ask for the money. So then I thought, <clears throat> well, what will I do next? Well, I've been doing a lot of things, but one thing I, I realized, I went to an insurance agent and I said, okay, if this house burned to the ground, what would you pay me to rebuild it? Mm. And they said $422,000. And the developer charged me $907,000. Oh, wow. So I figure I got, they built two houses with my money. Mm. And um, yeah, so um, I'm still working on that. Um, I think we've just decided to move on. Um, And, you know, again, we're building off the fact that um, this living community challenge, there are only at this point, I think, 14 registered communities in the world, only one in Portland. And um, one of our team members is in Rwanda right now. Um, And she was going back and forth between Rwanda and Germany. And uh, I said, well, you know, the Passive House, International Passive House Conference is in Munich. Would you like to go to that? And she's like, oh, my God, I would love it. And she says, but I'll be in Rwanda. And I said, well could you come back? Mm-mm. She figured it out. So she's going, you know, we're a registered sponsor of this and we're going to figure out what the problems were in, um, with the passive house here versus it, cause it's a German standard. So, so what happened? Did you, did you, um, did you have a house built that does not function like a passive house? Yes. What does it function like? Um, a regular stick-built house? It, it doesn't function very well at all. <laughs> We've made it function. Um, the electrical system was criminal, in my opinion. It's so badly put in. I've spent a lot of time getting it done, mm-hmm. getting it redone, and it's still not right. Mm. I mean, I had somebody come over the other day, and he said, I'll put a, I'll put a doorbell in for you. It doesn't have doorbells. Um, and, <laughs> and, and, and I said, well... You have to understand the electrical system before we start this. Wow. It was supposed to be built as a sound studio because passive houses are very, um, they're like Adobe. Mm. Oh, so they're sound yeah. deadening. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. And we could use it as a sound studio. I see. No. Mm. Wow. doesn't work that way. Um, you know, I've got, uh, last Christmas, or I guess the Christmas before last, uh, I have an outside heat pump which froze and it sounded like a cement mixer. So I had no heat mm. or hot water over Christmas for two weeks wow. last year. Wow. Crazy. Um, and nobody wants to talk to me about this. And I'm just kind of like, you know, yeah. This, I, they will. It's just going to take time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So once you've gone to the construction board, is it binding? Like you, you can't take them to court? Well, I, 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 then I said I wanted, I, I wrote to Kate Brown and I said I wanted to... Um, um, file a complaint against the contractor's construction board. Mm-hmm. 
So she sends me back to somebody in the office of the contractor's construction board. <laughs> so I'm really not that stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can see a conflict of interest yeah. when it comes up. Yeah. And that seems to be something people in Oregon are blind to. Yeah. That, um, yeah. So, um, so I haven't given up. It's going to come back, and people are going to hear about mm-hmm. it. So anyway. So you must have, you must have extremely deep pockets. No. No. So how are you funding, for example, the travel of this person from Rwanda to Germany and then back and the building of this home and this at this trust? Not, I think you called it a trust. The 80-acre thing that you're talking about and the architect that's helping you and this team that you have. How are you doing that? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going from here and I'm going to meet with two real estate agents and I think I'm going to put it on the market for $50 million. Put what on the market? My house. And the criteria will be, and maybe it's more than $50 million, because I don't know how much it will cost to buy all this land into a community land trust. But my house has to go into a community land trust. And I have to be able to live in the ADU uh-huh. and you know, be in charge of it for my lifetime. Mm-hmm. How, how big is the house? Um, it's, well... Square footage-wise. It's like 2,098 square foot, including the main house in the ADU. I can't wait to see how you're going to justify 50 million. You're trying to figure out the per square foot Yeah, exactly. Cost. It's like, wow, that's, that's a bold move, <laughs> even for an old white lady. <laughs> that's awesome. Oh, it is. That's pretty exciting. I'd, I'd like to keep in touch with you because it sounds like you're up to some really exciting mm-hmm. things. Oh, and yeah, and I've, I do have <laughs> small house, I mean, tiny house stories, too. Yeah, we like, didn't, we didn't even get, get to them. To them. Yeah, so we'll just have to have I also like how it's like, yeah, yeah, she wrote Trump to deal with this, and then she wrote the governor of Oregon uh-huh. to deal with that. It's like, yeah, I'll just start at the top and then deal with things. <laughs> yeah, but Trump is easier to get to than Kate Brown. Really? Oh, yeah. yes. Well, you saw my letter. Yeah, well, yeah. And I've got all the letters I sent him, and what I did is I thought, well, I have to get his attention. And he has a short attention span, which is okay because I do too. Um, and so I had to write everything on one page and deal with only one issue at a time, which is awfully hard for me mm-hmm. but I figured out how to do it so I wrote five letters mm-hmm. and I put each one of them in with my little book about the house called What Is This Place mm-hmm. and I was very respectful and I got an answer wow and that's awesome you yeah, know that's awesome that's it <laughs> <laughs> there's so many things I want to say but I won't <laughs> I, I know right yeah. this is so amazing yeah, so yeah. Diane thank you so much for being on the show and it was a it was a refreshing departure actually mm-hmm. and I'd like to It'd be cool to have you back and talk about tiny houses and other things in progress on your project and everything. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, just curious, when do you think you would see significant, whatever you define that as, significant progress on your, your, uh, your 80-acre project? Well, we're making progress every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when I first put it in, <clears throat> the, the project manager at ILFI, I mean, everything seems to be, have to be done in a hurry here. And um, I said, well, I think this is probably at least a five-year project. And she says, I think it's a 10-year project and, um, and maybe longer. But I'm willing to wait it out. And, uh, you know, there were, I'm, I'm looking at some precedent here mm-hmm. <clears throat> from the Dudley Street Initiative in, in Boston. Um, and um, God, I can't remember the name of the book. But I've been following that. I mean, first of all, it was a book that I read. Mm-hmm. Um, and it started out, the neighborhood was in much, much poorer condition than, than the than neighborhood we we're here. starting here. Yeah. And um, 
uh, and they've made huge steps forward. I think that they have a small um, uh, community land trust, but only one of those houses has turned over in 26 years. Oh, wow. Interesting. So that's what I would like to see yeah, because I think that means that, you know, from a sustainable resiliency standpoint, yeah. you know, we're, we're building history, we're yeah. building community, yeah. and that's what we want to have. Yeah. We don't want people being thrown out of their houses in six months and stuff like yeah, that. That's ridiculous. Yeah, I agree. Well, Tiny Housers, uh, thank you so much for listening to this really eclectic show. <laughs> so <laughs> eclectic that so. Michelle didn't participate very much. It's just so interesting. Where does she go? Um, anyway, uh, next week we're going to have another great show coming out. So you got to come back or else you're going to miss out. Oh, quick plug for our Facebook page. Yeah, yeah we got a new page. Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Yep. And um, what's it called? Tiny House Podcast <laughs> mm, on, Facebook. <laughs> on Facebook. So we post, of course, all of our shows on that Facebook page. Yeah. Um, and if they, you know, like and follow, then they'll actually get our shows fed to their Facebook Directly page. Directly to their Facebook. Yeah. Page. So we're getting out there slowly but surely. Awesome. Let us feed you. Let us feed you. Social media thing. All right. Someone said it's supposed to work, so we'll see. How. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Thanks again for listening. Have a good one. Thank you. Be good. Bye. Thank you for listening to Tiny House Podcast. To find us online, go to tinyhousepodcast.com, where you will also find our show notes, if we remember to put them there. Our logo was designed by the amazing Carolyn Maine. Our website is hosted by the gang at Sightcast. Our theme music is by Oma Studio. Please go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating, or whatever. You tiny house-loving bastard. Tiny House Podcast is probably made in Portland, Oregon. <laughs>